Welcome to the Wags of SCI podcast, where we discuss all things life, love, and caregiving after spinal cord injury, hosted by Elena Polly and Brooke Paget. Our partner's spinal cord injuries are what brought us together, and our common bond as caregivers to quadriplegics is what helped us to create the advocacy group, WAGS of SCI, which is an acronym for Wives and Girlfriends of Spinal Cord Injury. We know firsthand the challenges this lifestyle presents, and our mission is to spread awareness and positivity from our unique perspective. So join us each week as we discuss fresh topics and new ideas surrounding relationships, self-care, and living your best life as a caregiver and partner to someone with a serious injury. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Wife of SEI podcast. Here we go. Let's put this episode on a momentary pause because we want to introduce all of you to one of our amazing sponsors, Wishart Brain and Spine Law. Led by our personal mentor and lawyer, Robin Wishart, Wishart Brain and Spine Law is a uniquely specialized law firm located in Vancouver, British Columbia. They focus their practice on complex spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury cases and work with clients all over North America as advocates and a much needed resource for the SEI community. Robin and her team look at their clients differently than other firms. You are not just a case, you're a person with a family, a life, and a purpose. Robin and her team are always looking for ways that they can help rebuild the best life possible for their clients by finding them support they need for their recovery, such as assisting with insurance or benefits paperwork, finding resources for home adaptations, setting up medical appointments with doctors and specialists, making sure that her clients are doing okay physically and mentally. Wishart Brain and Spine Law is proud to support WAGS of SCI. Robin is committed to helping clients and their families any way she can because she wants you to live a life and not your claim. Your first consultation is always free, so contact them at brainandspinelaw.com and make sure you mention the WAGS of SCI. This podcast is brought to you in part by Megan Williamson, head coach at Ocean Rehab and Fitness. Live life with an SCI and looking to improve your fitness? Or maybe you're finished rehab and want to take the next step in strengthening your body. Megan Williamson at Ocean Rehab and Fitness now offers online adaptive training programs and one-on-one coaching to individuals around the world with spinal cord injuries. Visit www.oceaninsiderclub.com for more information on how you can get started on achieving a stronger you. Hey guys, welcome back to the Wags of SEI podcast with your hosts, Elena Polly and Brooke Paget. We are back again for another episode of talking about insurance, but this time we're talking about the process of applying for appeals when you are denied with your insurer. Yeah, this is a huge thing in our community, which is why we wanted to do a podcast today about it, especially with, you know, the end of caregiver week of spinal cord injury week. And we're kind of all thinking about, you know, insurance and paperwork and what we go through with companies, wherever you're from benefits, you all have to deal with insurance in some way, whether it's a private insurer, or a government program, they all have the same process. So that kind of unifies us in a way. Um, it's another commonality we have. You know, um, 
someone has to deal with disability benefits at some point. It's just the way that our society works at the moment. And we've noticed in the community that there is a lot of confusion um, and missed opportunities when it comes to your right to appeal a decision that is made that affects your life from an insurance company. Um, and so this is why this is important. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, the steps in the process for filling out paperwork gets kind of, you know, there's a lot of misinformation. There's, there are a lot of steps. And this is what, kind of what Brooke and I were talking about uh, this morning was that when you first have an SCI, you're so thrown into like a whirlwind of decision making and gathering the right information for your daily living and quality of life that fighting with insurance companies is probably the last thing that you want to do. But it's really, really, really important to start the process from literally as early as you can. Because Dan and I are now five years out and we're just finally applying for uh, more hours that he's qualified for and appealing the hours that we were granted, which is like a quarter of the hours that he needs to live his best life and his safest life so yeah I think that's one of the biggest uh, piece of advice I can give to you is definitely look to see what you qualify for and start the process as early as you can and always get all the communication between you and whoever's making these decisions uh, in writing get it in writing the phone call thing doesn't work out so well when you need to appeal and you need legal representation you have to have every single thing in writing between you and your case manager or you and the company everything has to be written down yeah it's true and a lot of uh I know Robin Wishart our lawyer um for Wishart Brain and Spine Law has said this to us so many times is do not speak to anyone do not write anything down about your claim or what happened or to whom regardless of whose fault it is without speaking to a qualified lawyer who is a specialist in the area of spinal cord injuries, preferably. Um, They will know the ins and outs of what you need and, you know, what goes into that injury and who to talk to. You don't want to like put yourself in a box right off the bat and potentially say something that could haunt you. And I know this has happened to us in the past where we have said things to insurance that have come back to bite us in the ass and it's terrible. Um, it's not what you want to do. So yeah, definitely make sure that all communication with your insurer, with your government program, whoever's representing your coverage is in writing. Um, because, Insurance companies have to go by policies. It doesn't matter if it's a government program or it doesn't matter if it's a private insurer. They all have their internal policies that they have to justify things with. So you're not going to, you may get an answer over the phone by someone that says, no, he doesn't qualify or no, he doesn't need this or no, he shouldn't apply for this. But that's just words. Um, request a decision in writing because when they request a decision in writing or when you request that decision, They have to outline specifically the reasons why they are making the decision they're making. And why is this important? This is important because they have to justify why they're saying no, why they're saying no, he doesn't qualify. There has to be a reason in their policy book. And that reason that they use 
is what you're going to need ultimately to file an appeal. And so we have a bunch of, uh, the thing to remember is it's very, very difficult to have transparency and access to information when it comes to insurance or government programs that deal like insurance. It's really, really hard. They're not going to give you all the information up front. And the only way that you can learn how to deal with them sometimes is, you know, reading 500 pages of policy handbooks that you may not understand or learning the hard way or through another wag of SCI or someone in the community that has gone down the road and doesn't want you to make the same mistakes as them, unfortunately. Right. Or Google. <laughs> Always type things into Google. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is like, you know, you could say I, I would my number one piece of advice for anybody, when you get a policy handbook, make sure you read it. Um, everyone has them. Everyone gets them. Sometimes we sign them without reading them. But regardless of what happens, you need to know your policy handbook. And yes, it's a lot. But reading it can help you to know what is possible and also help you to think outside of the box, right? As to like what mm -hmm. you qualify for. And it'll help you to ask questions, mm -hmm. right? Right. So besides getting your policy handbook and reading it over, what would you say the next step to the process is? Let's say um, I have been denied the first the first time. Well, first step is to get a denial in writing from your case manager. Um, once you have that written denial, then you can move forward. And so we have a lot of, um, if you're unhappy with the denial, that is, you can move forward. Um, if the denial makes sense to you, I mean, myself, from what I've seen, if you get denied something that your partner really needs or that you really need, there can always be, like, there's no harm in appealing it, right? They're not going to take something right. away. You've already, you have nothing to lose, right? If you feel like this is justified, even if you think it's a long shot, it's better to appeal it with a good appeal than to just leave it. And so we have some, like, really interesting statistics that we pulled up this morning that I think mm -hmm. everybody should know about because it's public information. And this is actually from the U.S. So this isn't from Canada, where we're from. This is from KFF.org, which is a foundation that specializes in gathering and analyzing statistics that are submitted publicly from the Affordable Care Act in the U.S. as a mandate of the Affordable Care Act in the U.S. submitted publicly to outline what happens with reviews, decisions, and appeals in their organization. So it's a, it's a huge resource. And what they do is they analyze transparency data, which is so important, but people don't know this stuff is available, which is crazy. So you can just go to kff.org and search for transparency data, claims data, and it all will come up there for you if you, if you want to check what we're talking about right now. Right. Um, and that's why, that's why I was saying, you know, use your search engine because all of this stuff is online, right? Um, you know, you can always like find so much information about policy, um, like the, the actual process of appealing and which mm -hmm. policy you're under and, and, um, it takes a lot of reading, but it's all there. It's all public knowledge. Yeah. And every insurance company has an appeals process. So after you get a denial in writing, any decision whatsoever, and you choose to appeal it, um, first off, like I said before, you have nothing to lose. You might as well if you feel like it's justified. But the first thing to do after that is to 
request appeal documents, request information on how to do the actual appeal. Every company is different. Every body is different. Um, and every company has appeal documents because legally you have to be able to appeal your decision if you want to. So request the appeal documents, um, whether it's a link, whether they send them to you via mail, just request them. If they don't send them to you right away, make sure you follow up right away because there is a timeline for this. Every insurance company has a timeline to submit your appeal. For us in Canada, it's 90 days. You have 90 days to submit an official appeal on a certain decision. And so sometimes what they'll do is they'll try and distract you and they'll try and discourage you from appealing. So you'll request the appeal documents and they will just hope you forget about it. Um, so make sure you make notes and reminders for yourself so you don't get too distracted doing other things. Because let's face it, this life is so distracting and time flies. So make sure from the date you receive a decision letter, you mark off the time that you have to appeal and make sure you receive the documents in a timely fashion so that you know how to appeal because every company is completely different, right? But it's all the mm -hmm. same process, right? They have a That's a really that's a really good point though that that there is a time. Yeah. There is a time sensitive um, situation here so there you, you do end up running out of time if you don't know, right? Yeah. And they and want you to Right. Exactly. And that's what your your company that you're dealing with will will want from you is, for instance, like with Dan and I, we've been waiting for four months for our case manager to come back mm -hmm. with a decision, even though she told us that it would take she would get it done next week. And that was four months later. So four months of me still doing the care unpaid mm -hmm. and going through the whole process, especially with COVID. Um, that's what they want. They yeah. want you to kind of you know, bend over backwards for your partner because you will, because you love your partner. So yeah. just keep that in mind that yeah. time is of the essence. And a lot of people don't know that. And a lot of us, myself included, just trust the system and the process because I feel like um, having an SCI is quite traumatic as it is and life-changing that you're so wrapped up in it and you miss a lot of stuff that you should be paying attention to when it comes to legalities mm -hmm. and paperwork. And, you know, that's, that's just the way it goes. That's the truth. And I mean, I know we missed out on a few things too. So very, very important to keep in mind that you do have a certain amount of time to appeal certain things or to, to apply for certain um, aspects of your life that you qualify for. Yeah. And it's also important to note that these case managers and these companies are actually trained to delay the process as long as yeah. possible because every second they delay the process, they are saving money. They don't care about your situation. Like we've said in many podcasts before, you are just a number to them. You're, you're not actually someone that they care about regardless of what they say. Money is the bottom line. It doesn't matter if it's government. It doesn't matter if it's private. It's You're just a number, right? And I think accepting that and just working that to your advantage is hugely important. And just realizing that these people, people are paid to delay the process. So Well, and they get bonuses too yeah. for cutting corners, saving money. Yep. They get extra bonuses. Of so, course they do. Yep. It's so a huge what, business. It is a business. And that is the perfect way to put it, that you are just a number. This is just a business. So Yeah. And also you know, we're not trying to say anything bad about these case managers. They're just doing their job. Um, yeah, but it's important sure. to, yeah. Right. But it's important that you may remain professional and you don't get emotional. It's such an emotional time that you can say things that you'll regret. It's just important to keep things in writing, keep things on paper, request written communication, request email communication, 
especially now since companies are really open to the idea of email during COVID because it's so hard to get mail around, right? See if you can do it that way. It makes it a lot easier. It makes it so that you're not going to get super upset over the phone. You know, I've been guilty of that many, many times where I've literally started crying to my case manager who does not know what it's like to live as a caregiver or have a spinal cord injury. They, they're impartial. They don't understand. They don't care. So they're not going to be sympathetic, even if they right. say that they are sympathetic, they're not. They're just trying to trap you into just trusting them when, you know, you shouldn't. You should trust in yourself and your ability to just complete paperwork. That's, that's funny because I feel like <laughs> Dan and I had this conversation recently about the communication we had with somebody that um, may, was in charge of making a lot of decisions for us, um, our case manager. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Um, and it's interesting because every single time we communicate with her, um, I'm always like, no, that's not acceptable or no, you need to try harder or no, we're not going to, you just accept the hours that you give us. And Dan is very, very like, okay, I understand. Okay. I understand your hands are tied. So that's like brought up a lot of stuff between the two of us when it comes to like why, you know, I feel like we're a little bit on a different page, but then we also had like a really open conversation about, um, why one of us is so trusting and the other one is not. And it actually came back to something that you and I talk about all the time. It's like your frame of reference, um, that shapes who you are and how you operate and how you you know, communicate how you live your life. And he was like, I think that's because like, I grew up in a family system that was like, that taught me from an early age, how to trust and everything's okay. And I know a lot of you already know this, but some of you don't know, but I was, I grew up in an orphanage for part of my life in Siberia. So I was like, you know what, to take a little bit of like, psych and throw it in there about how we operate as human beings it's like the majority of people who are going through this process had a great upbringing or whatever or had open communication or whatever so that like naturally and in this part of the world naturally we feel like we can trust everybody and especially when something like this happens like a very like I said very serious injury like this happens you just want to you know you want to bond with your case manager you want to you want to believe that they truly truly are like okay I need to figure out what it is that Dan and Elena want and need where it really isn't that way at all so I thought that was kind of like an interesting conversation to bring up instead of being like why are you why are you not on my side Dan like why are you not like more um you know being more concerned about this. It was just like a shift in perspective. Yeah. And also, if you think about it from their perspective, they're the injured ones. They're the ones that, you know, they've lost a lot and they, they're kind of, I I would say from my perspective, dealing with my husband and his injury, he felt very defeated. And his strategy was, if I'm just nice to this case manager, and if I'm just complacent and I just don't ask questions and just allow them to do what they want to do, maybe it'll work to my benefit. And the issue comes when it's years down the line Mm -hmm. and they've fannied around for years delaying things. Um, Mm -hmm. You really see that they take advantage of that powerlessness that people with severe spinal cord injuries have, right? Yeah. Not to mention also, years and years down the line you most likely won't even have the same case manager anymore right all you have left 
all you have left is writing what mm-hmm. they've reported back on. So they might be reporting something really sweet and nice to you. But in writing, which is like the most very most important piece of information is to have it down in writing. Um, it could look like a totally different story. And then people just kind of go off of that. So yeah, and again, that was a that was a huge mistake that I made at the beginning. I remember when we were moving home, we were walking around my apartment um, with Evan's case manager. And I said to her, and this has to do with what we've talked about in the past on the show about caregivers rights and being paid for care. I had said to her, well, I mean, do we have to do agency care? Like, why can't he just go on the self-managed care program and hire people himself and then hire me? to do his care. And she replied to me, not in writing, of course. Um, and I was too busy to ask for it in writing. I just didn't even think about it at the time. But she said to me, no, you don't want to do that program. It's too much work. Um, it's too hard on him. He needs to focus on his recovery. Um, you don't want to do that because you need the agency care. You need the help. You don't need to do that. It's not right for you guys. And I listened because I thought that she truly cared about us. I thought that she truly cared about recovery, but now I looked down the road and, or I looked down, to what happened at us and I, to us. And I say to myself, okay, I, I shouldn't have trusted that because now I know how they work. And I think it's, it's not that you shouldn't trust people in general, because I trust a lot of people. I, <laughs> I think that it's more like you should just be, know that it's a business, just be aware that it is a business. They're being paid. You are a number yeah. And you're not any different than anybody else that has a claim in that company. It's a business. And, yeah. and you know, you hear business experts talking about this all the time. When it comes to business, emotions cannot be involved. So when they try and use emotional manipulation, it's a tactic. It's not because they're sympathizing with you. And it's, it's you know, that's my experience. And I know that companies function the same way, you know, it's across the board. It's a business. Right. And the bottom well, line is what matters, right? So, and they and they typically, you know, it takes a certain kind of personality to work in the job. Like you have to be quite yeah. charismatic, and you have to be able to mm-hmm. um, have that, you know, that ability to bond with people and have them trust you. Like it's a, I mean, it's a great position. I'm sure that you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I was going to say. On the other hand of this, don't allow the process to make you bitter and hate the world either. Exactly. Um, you know, it like Brooke was saying, take that emotion side out of it and just kind of, you know, go through the steps, fill out the necessary paperwork, but realize that it's not personal. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, it's just not personal. And that's what I said to Dan, too. I'm like, I'm not like, it's not like I'm not trusting her because I have trust issues with people as how he's trying to like describe his psychological approach here. But, um, I was like, no, it's just, it's just because we are just a number, like it's just the process and everybody has to go through the process at the end of the day. I was like, she knows it's not personal that I'm questioning. Yeah. I mean, like we have to also protect ourselves, especially because down the line, we will both become old and Dan is really going to need those hours like that. We're really trying to fight for to have care in our home for, um, you know, I'm going to be old at one point. I can't, I can't take care of him forever. And I honestly, I really shouldn't be taking care of him, um, around the clock anyways, because I've already kind of injured myself. We were talking about this earlier, Brooke and I, that it's really important to take care of yourself as well um, and not leave it until you have a broken back yeah. or, you know, it you, you got to be 
you got to be really careful anyways. But that's so, yeah. why, but that's why these steps are so important to do and, and solidify at the beginning, because you want to be approved for the maximum amount that is possible for his injury. And you'll never know what that is with a first offer from insurance. You kind of have to take the next step because you are capable, you are capable of appealing. You're allowed to appeal. That is embraced. It is literally like everybody should appeal any decision that they're not happy with. Let's go back to these stats for a second because I have some interesting stats. Again, it's from kff.org. So they examine 180 major medical insurance issuers. Um, And the data is all voluntarily submitted to them and it's all accurate. And so this was from 2017. So in 2017, the issuers, the 180 medical issuers reported 232.9 million claims received. Mm -hmm. 41.9 million were denied. And of this data in itself, 0.5% were appealed. And those are, those are real numbers from the U.S. Um, I can imagine it's similar in Canada because we have a similar system, although we're more government, but it's similar because it is insurance. So some of these companies had a denial rate of 90%. And this is like, these are statistical figures. These are analyzed figures. And mm-hmm. less than 0.5% appealed. Another interesting stat when it comes to appeals is up to 88% of appeals, the decision was reversed. That's crazy. So basically what we're saying is not a lot of people are appealing and the ones that are appealing are winning. Right. Yep. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's like kind of life-changing because, again... It's a business and insurance companies are trained to find any which way to refuse you or deny you. And they want you to feel powerless because that's how they make your money, their money. And that's the cold, hard truth. I mean, it is pretty crazy. I mean, I mean, you guys like honestly, Brooke and I talk about this all the time and we're not here to like kind of like hype it up or like (laughs) put fear of God in you. Actually, we are trying to we're trying to put some fear in you because this is your life and that you do have control over your life and you do have control over the process of appealing and appeal, appeal, appeal until you get what you want. That this is an actual thing. Yeah, it's true. So knowing those numbers, um, knowing that you can go to this website and look at them yourself. Um, it's 180 major insurers, so they covered a lot of ground and all this insurance is mandated to be public, this information from these insurance companies. Um, it's called, you know, transparency information. And I'm so glad that it's there. It's just people don't know about it. So take some time, go to the website, surf for yourself, um, look up the numbers. You'll see it is in your best interest to be able to appeal. So let's talk about what happens after you request the appeal documents. So like you'll get the appeal documents in the mail or online and it'll show you a process, timeline, how to appeal. So on these stats on the KFF.org, it says that the number two reason, number one is denials based on medical necessity. We'll get into that after. But number the number two reason for appeals, it being denied or sorry, decisions being denied or appeals being denied are that you don't follow the process correctly, miss deadlines, or fill it out improperly. 
Right. That's how important it is to really pay attention to those small details. Read everything through a few times before you actually put ink to paper. Yep. And when you're formatting, make sure you follow every single step to a T. Do not try and do something different. Do not try and go outside of the box on this one. You have to follow it exactly. Um, Super important. Like you don't need to, you don't need to attach like a picture of like your family and the family dog. No. To your appeal process. Don't do anything outside the box. Just follow the steps. And that actually brings us to the next step. So when you're formatting your appeal, you have to only go by the decision letter. So don't look outside the box for any other reasoning because that's just putting extra work on your plate. You don't need to pull in reasons why you should have this that don't apply to the decision letter. Look at the decision letter, look at the policies that they cited for their reasoning and use that in your appeal and only that. Because when the appeal and review officers who are usually lawyers are looking at this, they're going to look at the policies only. So they're going to see the policies that they use to make the decision and they're going to line it up with your appeal. They're not going to look outside of that. They're going to say, does this decision letter follow what is reasonable for policy approval? They're going to look at that and they're going to look at your argument and say, is she arguing against these appealed or these policy decisions from the policy book? And you have to be able to say yes with your appeal. So you have to go in and argue specifically the case manager's points as to why. And that's when you get into the whole the whole whether it's medical necessity, which usually that is what it is. They, they deny you based on the fact that they don't know spinal cord injury and they don't know what is ne- a medical necessity. And that's when you bring in the notes right. and the justification. And these policies, actually, if you follow them correctly, protect you as well. So, exactly. you know, they're laid out laid out there so you could say I actually followed all of the steps I've given you everything that is outlined here and I've given you the proof you just have to know that those are there also to protect you not just to fight against you yeah and you know that's really really good that you brought that up is because we've gone through many appeals in the past six years and every single one of them As I've been examining the decision letter and what they're saying, the reasons why he cannot have this, the reason why he doesn't qualify, I usually find my answers in his answers. So he'll cite or he or she, the case manager, will cite a policy number, a reference number where they're getting this decision from. And I usually find that if I go to that area of the policy handbook, I'll usually find a way to prove that it is unjust or in his situation, not fair, or like you'll find your reasoning in his answers, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes. So like you'll be able to find a lot in those policy handbooks and you'll be able to like wrap your head around, okay, what is he saying now? He's saying that I can't, he, my husband doesn't qualify for this because it's not medically necessary. Well, what does medically necessary mean? What, do, how did they define medical necessity? Uh, you got to look at that. What is their definition in the book of medical necessity? Okay, their definition says it means that a physician doesn't justify this for, you know, whatever reason, or it means that we have found that there's no proof that this works. So then you go in and you find your proof. You find it online. You get your physician to write a a medical justification letter. That's very important because you can get 
get a letter from your OT, from your PT, from your physiatrist, from whoever. Make sure that you can start collecting those uh, letters because those are the proof. When you have a medical expert, such as a doctor, recommending that you, you know, you need certain things um, for your quality of life or for your safety or for your well-being or for your mental health, that um, that's very powerful when it comes to the appeal process. And honestly, I'm still so shocked at the amount of power that physicians have when it comes to insurance companies. It is crazy. And here's the thing. Your doctor has your best interests at hand. So another tip I have is when you're requesting these letters of medical justification, don't just phone them or fax them or send them a letter requesting it because you'll go to the bottom of their pile. They're busy people. They don't have time to do this. What I would recommend is making an appointment to physically go and see or, you know, during COVID, Zoom, a Zoom appointment, a specific appointment with your urologist, your physiatrist, your GP, your PT, whoever it is that you need to write the letter, make an appointment with them. Spend the money if you have to. Invest because you're paying for their time and they're more likely to do the letter for you with an explanation from you where you tell them what is said and what you're trying to accomplish. So we've heard like a lot of women who said, oh, I submitted a request for a letter of medical justification. And then, you know, the doctor was supposed to send it off to Medicare or Medicaid and they never did, or it took six months and then their appeal deadline is passed. No, you have to go and get it yourself and request it yourself. And then you have to be the one to submit it. Yep. Very, very good point because doctors and like your GP, especially like they're super busy. They have so many other people to see um, that it's, it's also nice to kind of get it yourself because then you have that security and that assurance that you do have it and that you can make copies of it. You can send it off to whoever you need to just track everything, be organized. But even though it sounds like a very difficult process, it's really not that bad if you just take it one step at a time. Yeah, that's a good point. Don't overwhelm yourself with all that you have to do. Make nope. a list of, you know, what whatever your reasoning is as to why he was denied or why you were denied. Um, make a list as to who could justify this. It may only be one doctor, but I'm telling you from experience, the more letters of medical necessity and justification that specifically apply to your partner, the more chances that you're going to have them say approved. Um, we appealed uh, an FES bike. It took us three years. So what happened in that situation is we requested it. They denied it because they said it's not medically necessary. So what we did is we took out a loan from friends and family and we purchased the bike ourselves. It was hugely expensive. We could never afford it. We bought it ourselves. And what we did is we tracked the data over five months of use. And what we found during the five months of use for the FES bike is that his muscles were actually responding. And we had, you know, the evidence, the actual evidence from his muscles showing that mm -hmm. he was responding to treatment and that he was improving. And so... According to our insurance, that makes it so that there's actual proof and evidence that it is justified in improving his outlook from spinal cord injury. So we had that data. We had the months of data together. The report was like 60-something pages that I went through. I got a report from his PT. She came in and examined him on the FES bike. She wrote a big report as to why she thinks nice. it's necessary. We got a report from his physiatrist 
outlining the reasons why the bike is important for recovery and maintenance, the medical reasons. Then we got a a letter from his GP who said she's been treating Evan since the onset of his spinal cord injury and she's seen improvement. And it took three years, but we still got it approved. And eventually it was, it was, the money was returned to us and we could pay back the friends and family that lended us the money. So in the end, it was How worth much it. Is the bike? The bike, is the bike? Well, okay. So here in Canada, they're $30,000 Canadian. Wow. Um, in the States, I think it's similar, but it's, it's, it's U.S. So it's, it would cost us like 45 grand U.S. or Canadian in the U S currency. Yeah. They're so expensive. But the thing is, is like they have the ability to record your progress, which is like huge. So if you can, like if you're not getting anywhere and it's your last resort, like it was our last resort to purchase the bike ourselves. I don't think it would have been approved in our specific case if we hadn't have done that. And also he would have lost out on three years of muscle stimulation. Right. Right. So that's the kind of like outside of the box thinking that you have to do in order to get it done. But then again, I just went by what the decision letter said and it said, you know, that it's not medically necessary because there's no evidence of improvement. So we gave them the evidence. (laughs) A lot of this also is you have to have the time to be able to do this. That's why I think earlier when I mentioned like, take it one step at a time, just do a little bit each step, each, uh, each step of the way, because this is like, yes, it's very rigorous sort of appeal process and collecting all the data and the information and the letters and the evidence and everything can take you a lot of time. Um, but just break it up, get yeah. organized, you know, yeah. and just do a little bit at a time. And obviously like in Brooke's case, that's huge. Um, that's, you know, that's very important for recovery. I know that it is as well. Uh, we have like just like a little like $150 bike, but even within that, we've seen huge improvements for Dan in terms of like controlling spasticity. Um, he can move around easier. So I believe it. Yeah. And it's all about like, what is important to you? You know, like my, like my husband was like a huge fitness freak before his accident. And for him, he places so much importance on being able to move himself. And we also, we went to California after we raised a bunch of money. We went to adapt, um, in Carlsbad for, for a few months and he trained there and that's where he was exposed to the FES bike. And he was able to do like the, the crazy, like, uh, one that, that no one can afford for home use, the, the clinical FES bike. And he just fell in love with it. So it was something that kind of worked for him and that he was set on. Right. That being said, it doesn't work for everybody. It's a lot of freaking work. If you've ever seen my morning takeover, it takes about two, two and a half hours to fully do the process. It's a lot of work and it's not, yeah. for every, it's not for everybody. But that being said, that's an example of an appeal that went through. I can also tell you, um, about a kitchen appeal that went through and it was the same thing. They said it, sent us a letter that said, you know, he should, is not entitled to access to his kitchen, to his own kitchen, because I am the primary cook and, uh, I'm the one okay. cooking. So why should he have access to his kitchen? When in the policy handbook, it states that, especially for workers' compensation, I know it's the same in the U.S., um, where the worker should have access to his own kitchen and his own bathroom and his life should be as normal as possible and as close to pre-injury as possible. That's what our policies state. And so they were basically saying, well, the policies don't matter because you're the primary cook. 
And I was just, it was so, it was so sexist and so crazy. And so we appealed it right away. And the lawyer that did the appeal sent us a letter three months later saying that she's overturning their decision and that Evan doesn't matter if I'm the primary cook. She basically said that was ridiculous and that she overturned it and said, no, he's entitled to access to his own kitchen. Now, that being said, it's six years later. We're still waiting. Yeah. But at least there's something like in the works and I would also say an important thing is, is to not be stressed out about timelines unless it is coming up really soon. Yeah. Unless it's a deadline. Perfect. Like don't be stressed out about timelines. Just all you can do is follow up, you know, week after week and do your due diligence and don't let it go to the wayside. These companies are so freaking slow. It's mind boggling and on purpose. Yeah. On purpose for sure. hundred percent. And there's no accountability either. Unless you do it in paper review. There's no one you can talk to to sort it out because they're all on the same page, right? The worst is when you call to talk to like John or whatever and they're like, sorry, John doesn't work here anymore. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, And then you have to start start from scratch. So that's why it's important for you to have these documents yourself. So you can be like, actually, I have everything from when John did work there and it's all my file right here. And you you can be your own advocate. So funny. I'm just online reading the review process documents online for our insurance. Our objectives are to provide a simple, flexible process for independently reviewing decisions to help maintain consistency, predictability, and quality in our decision-making and to resolve decision disputes in a timely way. Isn't that, isn't that nice? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, legally, I think they have to use a lot of those words, but anyway, so we hope that you guys you know, if we, if we can, t- if you can take anything away from this, is that appeal, 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 have everything in writing, uh, be your own advocate. Mm-hmm. And if you do need an advocate or you do need a personal injury, injury lawyer, we have Robin Wishart, who is our official Wags of SCI lawyer. She's amazing. She will go to bat for you if you need, if you need her, you know where to find her. She's on our Wags of SCI page so keep that in mind we're always here to help you advocate as well if you have any more questions you can always reach us at our instagram at wags of sei facebook wags of sei and our email wags of sei at gmail.com <laughs> very simple wags yes. of sei find us reach out we're we're there for you if anybody out there has any questions about this episode or needs advocacy you know where to find us um also, I would like to say, to expand upon what you just said, you be your own advocate. Take pride in the fact that you are empowered to have the right things happen for you in the at the right time. And no one's going to do it for you. And we're all here to help you. And hopefully, you know, we help. You can it. help somebody else. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Because it, it's a train. It's a train of, of thoughts and, and, you know, women helping women and, and communities helping communities. And it's so important. And once you have success, you just feel so empowered that you actually spent the time to do this. So everybody out there struggling with insurance or struggling with getting approved for something, you are not alone. And reach out to us anytime if you need advocacy or further assistance. Thank you for listening to the Wags of SCI podcast and tune in next time. Cheers. The advocacy and outreach group Wags of SCI is currently a volunteer-based operation. We raise funds year-round to pay for date nights for our couples, essential medical supplies that our members may not be able to afford, 
mental health support for our WEGs, including counseling, and our amazing meetups led by our volunteer ambassadors around the globe. If you feel called to support our mission, please visit our website, wegsofsci.com, or donate directly to the WEGs of SCI GoFundMe page. We thank you for your support to help make this group possible and make a difference in the lives of SCI couples worldwide.